So it's my pleasure to introduce a colleague, Dr. William Zell, dedicated teacher and scholar of American political thought and the U.S. Constitution. Dr. Uzel graduated with a BA in speech communications from Black Hill State University in South Dakota, and MA and a PhD in politics from the University of Dallas. She is currently adjunct lecturer at the University of Virginia, where she teaches courses on American political thought. She's also lectured at such prestigious places as the University of Richmond, <laughs> James Madison University, and Baylor University. Dr. Uzel has held numerous research-related appointments. She was a postdoctoral fellow at the Program on Constitutionalism and Democracy at the University of Virginia, a senior, and a senior fellow at the Robert A. Fox Leadership Program uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. She was also a scholar in residence at the Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier, where, among other things, she developed several online course guides on the Constitution. She's a regular contributor to the We the People program. Indeed, few of any teacher scholars have done more to bring the Constitution to the attention of high school students and teachers than Dr. Uzel. She is also author of several papers on James Madison and the U.S. Constitution, and is near completion of a book entitled Madison's Word on Trial, Appraising the Records of the Constitutional Convention. Last but certainly not least, among the list of Dr. Uzel's accomplishments is a postdoctoral fellowship at the Marshall Center where she has also attended several lectures and conferences. Today, Dr. Zell will speak on the subject of James Madison as the father of the Constitution. Please join me in welcoming or welcoming back Dr. Zell. to Dan and Shannon and the Marshall Center, which for me has just been the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, they gave me this fabulous postdoc now almost a decade ago, and then they invited me back to these wonderful conferences where we dive deep into subjects like Benjamin Franklin and uh, Adam Smith, and this year they invited me to dive deeply into my favorite subject of all, James Madison and the Constitution, and I could not be more honored or more grateful to be here. Uh, and so without further ado, let's dive into those topics. Now, back when I acted as scholar in residence at, in the Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier, one of my lesser scholarly activities was sometimes to dress up as Dolly Madison and uh, to introduce the topic of James Madison to a popular audience. And the idea was that I was going to give them a small show of the life and the importance of the political work of James Madison. And the conceit was that Dolly Madison was going to defend her husband's title 20, 40 minutes long, of Father of the Constitution. And after years of giving these presentations, I encountered all manner of questions and responses. But my favorite response, and I heard it often, was this one. I had no idea how important James Madison was to the founding of this country. Madison does not loom large in America's popular imagination. He was no military hero like Washington, nor a wit and balmy vaunt like Benjamin Franklin, and he lacked the rhetorical flair of Jefferson. Unlike John Adams or Alexander Hamilton, he hasn't been favored with an HBO miniseries of his life, <laughs> or an even sure 
Her Road to Immortality, a smash hit Broadway musical. <laughs> For most people, Madison's contributions to the American legacy have often seemed opaque. He has generally been overshadowed by the company he kept. Even his wife Dolly was a bigger celebrity than he was. Nevertheless, of all the responses I ever received when addressing popular audiences, nobody ever challenged Mrs. Madison on her central conceit. No one questioned her husband's claim to the title of father of the Constitution. If they knew one thing about Madison before visiting Montpelier, it was his constitutional paternity. And they were ready to be convinced of what they already knew. Scholarly reactions to Madison's legacy could not be more different than the popular one. Among political theorists, in particular, Madison has long been considered a rock star of the American founding. Even when Madison stands alongside the assembly of demigods in this elite generation, few can rival the depth or the breadth of his thinking on constitutional topics. Nevertheless, scholars have been more skeptical about the facile description that he followed the founding charter. But, after all, it is the job of the bookish class to question popular assumptions and to skewer sacred cows. So tonight, I propose to doff Dolly's turban and finally ask whether a defense of Madison's title can survive a more serious and scholarly examination. In other words, if Madison were to be given a constitutional paternity test, could he pass it? <laughs> uh, the idea of fathering a constitution is, of course, a metaphor, an analogy, a poetic figure of speech. And it might at first glance seem like a rather frivolous exercise to defend the legitimacy of a mere figure of speech. And so it might be, were it not for the extraordinary energies that have already been expended trying either to defend or even more commonly to debunk this title. Now, writing in 1928, one historian, less jaded than our current prop, said that Madison has been termed without dissent the father of the Constitution. And Clinton Rossiter, writing just over three decades later, said with only a bit more circumspection that few historians would begrudge Madison the title of father of the Constitution. But Rossiter was writing in the relatively innocent year of 1961 before historians began in earnest their grudge match against Madison's paternity. By the 1980s, Christopher and James Lincoln Collier was, were still conceding that most historians would accept that title, but they also made it abundantly clear that they were not included in those ranks. And Forrest MacDonald dismissed the title outright as a myth, lamenting at the same time that it was such a deeply rooted one. To this day, probably no one has done more than MacDonald to demythologize Madison's constitutional legacy. Mel Bradford sought to substitute an alternative narrative for the paternal one. Madison was never more than almost the father of the Constitution. Bradford believed that instead of the father figure, he should be more properly be cast as the hapless buffoon in what he termed Madison's comic drama. Now, while some authors have sought to question or debunk the title, others, with more or less charity towards Madison, have sought alternative monikers. Richard Brookheiser suggested, no doubt trying to be charitable, that if Madison was not quite the father of the Constitution, he was its midwife. 
Kevin Guzman was a tad less generous, far from being the father of the Constitution, Madison was an unhappy witness at its C-section birth. <laughs> Perhaps he might be more appropriately called an intending nurse. And Bruce Hoffman prefers the title Godfather of the Constitution. Now, no doubt Hoffman meant by this imagery to evoke the idea of the infant constitution at the baptismal font and Madison standing by with swaddling clothes waiting for a blessing. But any American familiar with popular culture cannot help giving that term a more sinister cast. <laughs> we wonder if Madison is godfather to the Constitution, which anti-federalist is it who breaks up next to the horse's head? <laughs> the smart money is on Patrick Henry. <laughs> now, not all skeptics are trying to extinguish or replace the title altogether. Some are nominating rival claimants for it. A couple of authors believe that a good case can be made that James Wilson of Pennsylvania was at least as deserving, if not more deserving, than Madison was honorific. Richard Brookmeiser thinks another Pennsylvanian, Governor Gouverneur Morris, deserves at least a share in the maternity, especially for his role in composing the final draft of the Constitution. But the sons of South Carolina are determined not to be outdone by Pennsylvania. The very first rival claimant for the title appears to be Charles Pinckney, and the very first person to make the case for Pinckney's paternal appears to be his own grandson. <laughs> According to an article in 1864, Pinckney has always been considered as entitled to the high and honorable designation of father of the Constitution. But another South Carolinian, John Rutledge, has also been found worthy of being called the Constitution's father. So who is John Rutledge and why does he deserve the title? According to Lawrence Goldstone, since the Constitution is entirely about protecting slavery for the South, and John Rutledge did more than any other framer to win slavery concessions for the South, it is he who deserves the duty, dubious distinction of presiding at the head of that family's table. Now, other writers, however, impatient with this nickel and diming approach of choosing just one father for the Constitution, have suggested sharing paternity much more broadly. William Lee Miller protests against the singleness of the metaphor, pointing out that victory has a hundred fathers. Richard Brookmeiser, Brookmeiser further minimizes Madison's paternity claims by multiplying these progenitors by ten. Success has a thousand fathers. And John Wilde has effectively multiplied that number at least a thousandfold again by conferring, conferring the honorific on every American citizen. He notes that the only source capable of bestowing authority on a Republican Constitution is the people who ratified its text and subsequent amendments. Therefore, the great body of the citizens of America have the ultimate claim to be fathers and mothers of the Constitution. Nevertheless, Milo still does not wish to diminish Madison's claims to insignificance. He concedes that Madison still may at least be described as first among equals in this new, more inclusive, polypatristic image of fatherhood. So before considering any more alternative titles or rival candidates for them, it is necessary to examine the most serious objections that have been lodged against Madison's claims to eternity. And first, numerous writers have argued that we should reject the title because Madison rejected it. 
when responding to a correspondent's attempt to saddle him with that honorific, the story goes, he objected that the Constitution was not like the fabled goddess of wisdom, the offspring of a single brain. It ought to be regarded as the work of many heads and many hands. Now, those words are indeed Madison's. However, he was not responding to the title of Father of the Constitution when he wrote them. He was responding to William Cogswell in 1834, who had referred to him as the writer of the Constitution. Now, the term writer is very dis distinct and different from the word father. There is no metaphorical meaning in calling someone the writer of a document, and its literal meaning is obviously a false one. Madison, or anyone else, was the writer of the Constitution. But another serious reason why historians have urged a rejection of the title has been in Madison's deep sense of disappointment and pessimism at the close of the Constitutional Convention. Writing to his friend Jefferson less than two weeks before the convention adjourned, Madison privately expressed his opinion that this new Constitution, should it be adopted, will neither effectually answer its national object nor prevent the local mischiefs which everywhere excite disgust against the state governments. In a letter he wrote the following month, he detailed the grounds of his disappointment and pessimism, and they primarily rested on the loss of his federal veto. Now, once again, the words quoted are Madison's, but these facts get us no closer to reaching a conclusive result in our paternity test. For if a father's occasional disappointment and frustration with his offspring were sufficient to delegitimize them, that would make bastards of half the world's population. <laughs> so, so far, we have easily dispensed with two of the main objections, but the most formidable one is yet to come. Forrest MacDonald, who set out to debunk the myth of Madison's paternity, has argued that the Constitution that Madison set out to achieve when he arrived in Philadelphia in 1787, quote, bears limited resemblance to the document that was drafted by the convention, end quote. But the failure to find a resemblance doesn't end there. MacDonald also tallies up Madison's score during the convention's debates. Of 71 specific proposals that Madison moved, seconded, or spoke unequivocally in regard to, he was on the losing side 40 times. Now these facts seem to pose a daunting challenge to the paternity narrative. And nearly everyone who has taken a firm stance against Madison's claims to that title cites MacDonald's arguments. Some of them go on to add, that many of Madison's losses at the convention were his most cherished and also his most distinctive proposals. Now, the purpose of the modern-day DNA test is to locate the distinctive biological material that could come from one set of parents and could come from no other individuals. And even before we reach this degree of technological precision, an informal paternity test would be to search out distinctive features in the child, the curve of a lip, or the shape of an eye, that could come from that child's father and no other. If it's true that Madison's constitution, meaning the one that he had wanted or defended before and during the Constitutional Convention, bears little resemblance to the one that was actually born on September 17, 1787, then it appears that Madison has failed the DNA test his claims to fatherhood would seem to be a Not so fast. 
Before we shut the files on this inquiry with a resounding case closed, we should pause first to parse the meaning of this phrase more closely. The word father, after all, has two distinct meanings. Only one of these meanings relates to the mere biological act of begetting offspring, the sort of paternity that man shares with all the animals. But another distinct meaning of the word, and the only distinctively human meaning, is that of rearing, protecting, nurturing, and raising a child from infancy to maturity. Of the two meanings of father, this one, after all, is generally regarded as the more meaningful one. For those of us purchasing Father's Day cards next month, we most likely will not be gratefully acknowledging one man's single encounter with our mother, no matter how exquisite, but rather the years of sacrifice and care that came after. And if we apply this meaning of fatherhood to Madison's relationship to the Constitution, could he pass that paternity test? Now, I'm aware that skeptics and naysayers are apt to, prowl, to cry foul at this point, alleging that by drawing this distinction between the different meanings of the word father, I'm trying to pull a dirty swindle. <laughs> Since McDonald and others have given compelling reasons to reject Madison's claims to something like biological fatherhood, they might accuse me of substituting an alternative meaning as a retroactive attempt to salvage Madison's title in the face of an authentic defeat. The skeptics and naysayers would be mistaken. My suggestion that we need to shift our focus from the biological to the more meaningful and distinctively human definition of fatherhood is not being made from the posture of a defensive crouch. This is an offensive lunge. <laughs> What I'm arguing is that those who believe that father of the Constitution is supposed to refer to a biological act of beginning have grossly misunderstood the analogy, and they have been perpetuating this misunderstanding for generations. If we are to take this metaphor seriously and finally question in all earnestness whether or not Madison is deserving of it, the first step is to recover its original and authentic meaning. In order to do that, we must revisit the evening when it was first bestowed. November 3rd, 1827, the Pennsylvania Society for the Encouragement of Manufacturers hosted a dinner. Perhaps owing to a dearth of news in the greater Philadelphia area that week, details of this dinner were related at great length in the papers. Apparently, 15 toasts were offered in quick succession, and that was before the opportunity for lengthier toasts and speeches got underway. And judging by the number of times guests were invited to raise their glasses that evening, the reports that, quote, glee and repeated bursts of applause greeted every speech were probably not exaggerated. But the only speech delivered that evening of lasting significance was the longest toast of all. It was offered by Charles Jared Ingersoll, then Vice President of the Society. He raised a glass to the health and happiness of James Madison, the father and guardian of the Constitution. Ingersoll's name stuck, at least the father part. And it was not long before it gained widespread acceptance. But if we attend to the rest of the speech, it becomes obvious that Ingersoll was not evoking mere biological parentage. He began, if Washington was the father of our country, 
Mr. Madison is entitled to be considered father of that constitution by which it has accomplished eminent prosperity and power. Without ever appealing to the passions, but always addressing the reason of his fellow citizens, this illustrious patriarch, through a long career of public functions, as a member of Congress before the present Constitution, of the convention which formed it, of Congress afterwards, of the legislature of Virginia when his revolutions of 1798 were adopted as Secretary of State and as President of the United States impressed as much, if not more, of his mind than that of any other on our now well-defined and established institutions. Ingersoll does include Madison's services within the Federal Convention among his many contributions on behalf of the Constitution, but he lays no special emphasis on the circumstances of the Constitution's birth. Indeed, in the speech that follows that introduction, if Ingersoll privileges any one period in Madison's life over all the others, it was his presidency and retirement years, not the years surrounding the Constitutional Convention. A week after that fateful evening, Paulson's American Daily Advertiser published an article that substantially contained Ingersoll's speech, and it would later be republished in other newspapers in other states. The author of the speech wasted no time clipping the article and sending it personally to Madison. He wanted the object of his homage to know that the particular occasion that had elicited these words of reverence and regard for Madison's character and public life was the public letter Madison had recently written defending the proper interpretation of the Constitution. Madison responded to Ingersoll in his usual modest way. He was indebted to the author for both the friendly letter and the newspaper clipping. He said, and not less so, that in weighing my public services, the friendly hand unconsciously favored that end of the being. Therefore, Madison did gently protest that Ingersoll had exaggerated his merits. But we know of no instance, either then or at a later date, in which Madison denied or quarreled with the title that Ingersoll had bestowed on him in 1827. Among Madison's contemporaries, Ingersoll's father of the Constitution title appears to have been understood with the meaning that Ingersoll had given to it. In 1832, Elisha Smith wrote to urge Madison to break his silence once again and defend the Constitution's true meaning. Patriotism demanded he make that sacrifice, seeing as how he was considered father of the Constitution. Thus, we find that Madison's generation did not consider the duties of fatherhood deceased following a successful birth. When Smith made his appeal to Madison's paternal feelings, the Constitution was then approaching its 45th birthday, and its father was already in his 80s. <laughs> Therefore, those who had been seeking to strip Madison of this title by reducing the meaning of fatherhood to just one exquisite moment of constitutional conception, and the more immaculate the better, <laughs> or his role in its birth had been misunderstanding the meaning of this analogy all along. Perhaps we can call this phenomenon the original birther conspiracy. <laughs> now, to be fair, the misunderstanding of the metaphor does not appear to have originated with the debunkers. 
Indeed, it seems to have started shortly after Madison's death. In John Quincy Adams' eulogy of Madison, he claimed that it was Virginia's ratification of the Constitution that affixed the seal of James Madison as father of the Constitution. And the very first rival to Madison's title did not base his claims on a lifelong devotion to nurturing the Constitution. Instead, Charles Pinckney of South Carolina, totally lacking Madison's reticence about naming any one person as the writer of the Constitution, wanted his contemporaries to know that, well, he was its writer. Or at least, in his words, more than three-fourths of it are in the very words of my plan. Pinkney invites us to give him the constitutional DNA test. He can pass it. Now, nevertheless, Madison really was the undisputed holder of that title, though increasingly, over time, under false pretenses. Now, John R. Vile is probably right when he speculates that it is no coincidence that in the 1940s and 50s, repetitions of the title Father of the Constitution proliferated at the same time that scholarly attention to the framing of the Constitution became more widespread. It is certainly true that if we today review the uses of the phrase over the last century, whether by Ms. Madison's defenders or his detractors, we find that they almost universally refer to the Constitution's conception and birth, whether the period of birth is confined to the Constitutional Convention alone or extended to the ratification and perhaps even to the adoption of the Bill of Rights. And by confining Madison's fatherhood of the Constitution to these narrow functions, even as champions, though undoubtedly well-intentioned, were unwittingly laying the groundwork for legitimate questions to be raised by others. And ultimately, it led to the scholarly equivalent of Madison's epaulets being publicly snipped from his shoulders. So it's time to start anew. If Madison is seriously to be subjected to a constitutional paternity test, it ought to be the test appropriate to discovering the kind of paternity that the phrase father of the Constitution was meant to convey. We are not to ask men, can we discover Madison's DNA, and only his DNA, in the text of our Constitution, but rather, when Father Day rolls around next month, does James Madison deserve a card? Perhaps a new cravat? But wait, before answering that question, we must finish pars parsing the metaphor. Not only do we need to reconsider the word Father, but we need to recognize that the word Constitution also has more than one meaning. It is largely owing to the success of the American experiment that when we think of the Constitution, we think of a document, one that was signed by its framers on September 17, 1787, ratified the following year, and now sits under hermetically sealed glass in the National Archives. But we must remember that the word Constitution had a robust meaning long before it referred to a written document. It meant how the government was constituted, how political power was distributed and controlled. And that older meaning of the Constitution was still very much alive when Madison was alive and when his title was conferred. That Ingersoll was still at least partly operating under that older meaning of the Constitution is reflected again in his defense of Madison as his father. Without ever appealing to the passions, but always addressing the reason of his fellow citizens, this illustrious patriarch, through a long career of public functions, etc., 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 impressed as much 
if not more of his mind than that of any other on our now well-defined and established institutions. According to Ingersoll, Madison, as father of the Constitution, did not only, did not even primarily, shape the document that was generated by the convention, rather he formed the institutions that were established in accordance with that document. And even more important, he cultivated the reason of his fellow citizens. For if every constitution refers to the distri distribution and control of powers within any government, then a central feature of any Republican government will be the powers exercised by its citizens and their ability to control themselves. And Madison, according to Ingersoll, was more instrumental than any of his contemporaries in shaping not only the formal institutions of political life, but cultivating the reason of his fellow citizens. Because the reason, rightly or wrongly formed, will guide those institutions. Or put another way, Ingersoll is saying that Madison is more responsible than anyone else for forming Americans into a constitutional people. Now, that we finally do understand the real history and proper meaning of the phrase, father of the Constitution, is Madison deserving of it? Unfortunately, exploring the history and framing the question has taken so much time that there's none left to offer a satisfactory answer. <laughs> but seriously, a single speech could never do justice to all of Madison's contributions regarding the constitutional institutions and cultivating Americans into a constitutional people. To explore why Madison deserves that title would take a lifetime of studying the man's writings, speeches, and public service which, I might add, is not a bad way to spend a lifetime. But by first placing this question in the proper light, we have opened the way for a much more rich and interesting exploration than trying to artificially uphold the tired and simplistic trope of Madison personally begetting the words of America's founding charter. What I propose to do with my remaining brief time Rather than offering a comprehensive defense of Madison's claims to the title of father of the Constitution, is to give only a short synopsis and an incomplete one at that of what a comprehensive defense might look like. Before the Constitution was yet gleaming in its father's eye, Madison was preparing for the birth of a new kind of political arrangement. And he did what any expected father does. He sought insights from leading authorities. In particular, he eagerly searched for any works he could find on the arrangements of other confederacies, ancient or modern, since, quote, the operations of our own confederacy must render all such lights of consequence. This research project, conducted from 1783 to 1787, probed both histories and political philosophers for solutions to the problems that Americans faced. The arguments he developed were later employed, employed during debates in the Constitutional Convention and ratifying debates. Considering his years of preparation for fatherhood, it shouldn't be surprising that, notwithstanding the many battles he did indeed lose at the convention, his fellow delegates all seemed to recognize his genius. One of them wrote, in the management of every great question, he evidently took the lead in the convention. 
from a spirit of industry and application which he possesses in a most eminent degree, he always comes forward the best informed man of any point in debate. Now, passing lightly over Madison's performance at the convention, about which much has already been said, only a few words should suffice. His contributions in Philadelphia, while they did not dominate the proceedings, were not insignificant. And they would probably be better appreciated today if they had not, for so long, been exaggerated. <clears throat> Madison's efforts after the convention, like those that went before, were a flurry of intellectual arguments and political maneuverings at both the federal and the state level. Proceeding directly to Congress, he was instrumental in ensuring that the Constitution would be sent to the states without amendments. Meanwhile, he teamed up with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay to write a series of essays, you may have heard of them, the Federalist Papers, which would endure as the most significant commentary on the Constitution ever written. He nonetheless left that project early to travel back to Virginia in order to serve in the ratifying convention there. Now, as the largest and wealthy state, Virginia's ratification was crucial and foes to the Constitution were numerous and influential. Madison's performance during these debates are often underrated because the stenographer who was reporting them was sitting in a position where he could not hear him very well. Therefore, many of his arguments went unreported and many more were mangled. Nonetheless, to hear the commendations of those who were present, it would seem that Madison's influence was, once again, not insignificant. Being mindful of my host this evening, I cannot forbear one quotation from John Marshall, who, before serving as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, likewise served as a delegate to the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He was once asked, toward the close of his life, which of the various public speakers he had heard, and he had heard all the great orators, parliamentary and forensic, of America. He considered the most eloquent, replied, Eloquence has been defined to be the art of persuasion. If it includes persuasion by convincing, Mr. Madison was the most eloquent man I ever heard. Now, after ratification, Madison next served as a leading figure in the first Congress, where he almost single-handedly wrestled Congress into adopting a Bill of Rights. In one sense, Madison has a far greater claim to being the father or even the writer of the first 10 amendments than any other part of the Constitution. The proposal he drafted for Congress was adopted into the Constitution with far fewer alterations than any of his proposals at the Constitutional Convention. In another sense, however, Madison's contributions were less important. The main body of the Constitution is, after all, a political experiment, a true act of creation, a new political phenomenon which had never before existed. The Bill of Rights is derived from suggestions made by state ratifying conventions. Most of them derive from state constitutions, and many of them derive from centuries of British legal history. In the entirety of the Bill of Rights, we find only one clause that Madison added entirely on his own initiative. Yet in another sense, Madison's contributions to the Bill of Rights were still of paramount importance. Because in spite of our centuries of experiencing, uh, centuries of experience enjoying the rights of Englishmen, Madison expanded our understanding 
of a couple of the most important of those rights in distinctly un-English ways. We sometimes forget today that, according to the British understanding of a free press, there is nothing unconstitutional about President Adams' sedition laws. However, Madison argued in the Virginia Resolutions and in his report of 1800 that the distinctively American understanding of the freedom of the press was far more broad. Even more important was his defense and explication of religious freedom. This defense began in Virginia in the 1770s and 1780s. Arguably, Madison's distinctive understanding of religious freedom was not originally incorporated into the First Amendment. Nonetheless, our understanding of religious freedom today as something that extends far beyond a government's mere toleration of religious differences is owing primarily to Madison's masterful defense in his memorial remonstrance that he wrote for the state of Virginia. Now, after the adoption of the Bill of Rights, Madison added something else to our constitutional system that can be regarded at best <clears throat> as a mixed blessing. Along with Jefferson, Madison helped form America's first political party. After spending 1787 arguing so eloquently about the need to divide factions into smaller, less powerful coalitions, he spent the 1790s trying to unite warring factions under the single banner of what was then named the Republican Party. Madison himself had mixed feelings about his achievements during this period. He acknowledged with some regret that some of his essays breathed a partisan spirit which was of no advantage either to the subject or to the author. Nevertheless, and in spite of Madison's occasional excesses in his rhetorical screeds, the formation of parties was necessary. The nation was then, as it is now, divided over different conceptions of the common good. And these philosophical differences needed to find a way of organizing peaceably. Or, if not peaceably, at least without bloodshed. <laughs> Now, while Madison's achievements in the 1790s are almost universally recognized today as significant, it is sometimes difficult to convince modern scholars that Madison's presidency also has political and historical significance. It is therefore striking to contrast today's judgments to those of his peers. Yet Ingersoll, in his toast, singled out Madison's administration as being especially important to acquiring fame as father of the Constitution. And in the letter accompanying the text of his speech, he further lauded Madison's administration, considering it the most constitutional and most glorious period of our national existence. Now, what Ingersoll was suggesting was that Madison's presidency was more constitutional than any that had preceded it. He lauded Madison because in spite of facing a losing war with an enemy not only at the gates, but actually breaking through the gates, his presidency demonstrated that government and executive power in particular could be kept within constitutional limits. But Ingersoll's most important reason for considering Madison to be the father of the Constitution is yet to come. The primary occasion for Ingersoll's effusion of appreciation for Madison was not some deed or debate in the distant past, but his emergence from retirement to defend the Constitution in the face of a recent political struggle, what Ingersoll saw as a capstone to a lifelong guardianship of the Constitution's integrity. 
Therefore, few words must be said, even at the risk of oversimplification, of what Ingersoll was praising in Madison's constitutionalism. Now, over the course of a long public career, Madison advocated numerous political positions, and he has often been charged with inconsistency. But the consistent political thinker is not the one whose principles never collide. Rather, it is the one who knows the proper hierarchy of his principles, and therefore, which lesser commitments must give way before the greater. Madison's hierarchy of principles was generally clear and consistent. But one of Madison's most important principles was that to be free, government must be led by popular will. What that means in practice is that when, when one's personal opinions, however important, are in conflict with popular will, the former must give way. A leader may try to change popular opinion, but so long as it has been authoritatively expressed, it is paramount to private opinion. But in one sense, popular will was not the highest political principle for Madison. For when popular will was in conflict with the Constitution, the Constitution must be paramount. Although this seems to establish an authority that is even greater than the people, in a more important sense, it does not, because the Constitution, believe Madison, is the greatest expression of popular will. A popular movement may try to change the Constitution, but until their will is authoritatively expressed in the Constitution through the amendment process, any temporary expression of popular will must give way before the Constitution as it was adopted by the people. So that is Madisonian constitutionalism in a nutshell. The Constitution must be paramount to every other political consideration, because free government, government by the will of the people, demands that it be paramount. And it was like Madison's lifelong commitment to that principle and to forming the American citizenry so that they, too, would share his commitments that prompted Ingersoll to name him the father of the Constitution. But if that is the case, it raises an interesting question. Even granting that Madison was rightly considered the father of the Constitution, he was his influence in forming the institutions and citizenry of his day, can he still be regarded in that light today? Or would it only be proper to employ the moniker in the past tense? Madison was father of the Constitution. It can hardly be denied that not only have many generations passed away since Madison roamed the earth, but the Constitution itself has gone through several generations. Arguably, the first and most important in the line of succession was conceived by Abraham Lincoln. Prior to the Civil War, Lincoln described slavery as a cancer, which the framers of the Constitution did not know how to cure, but they hid it away from view until the body politic was strong enough to excise it. The experience of that bloody war, however, altered Lincoln's diagnosis. Slavery was a congenital defect, a fatal one, and nothing less than a rebirth, a new birth of freedom, was required of the nation. The Reconstruction Amendments constituted that rebirth. In many ways, the Constitution was transformed into something new by the addition of those three amendments, and Lincoln can rightly be deemed the father of this new Constitution. But the evolution of the Constitution did not end there. According to Darwinian theory, evolution usually takes hundreds, if not thousands, of generations for an organism to meaningfully change. But Woodrow Wilson's constitutional theories speeded up that process. 
His invocation of a living constitution meant that the constitution could evolve within a single generation and without the need to alter the words of the document. And this understanding is in many ways antithetical to Madison's constitutional thinking. But students arrive at college today believing not only that we have a living constitution, but that the framers of the constitution intended it to be interpreted in this way. That shift in constitutional thinking means that Wilson must also be deemed father of the Constitution if we follow Ingersoll's meaning of the phrase. Franklin Delano Roosevelt must also be deemed a father. He argued that the Bill of Rights, while sufficient for his day, no longer met the country's needs. And he proposed a new economic Bill of Rights. And although it was never formally adopted into the Constitution, the Constitution is sometimes interpreted as if it had been. Once again, for better or for worse, this Constitution bears little resemblance to the one that Madison defended. Michael Lind, even cautions liberals against embracing Madison's title of father of the Constitution, since his understanding of the federal Constitution was intended to prevent anything like the New Deal from occurring. And the list of the Constitution's possible fathers might go on, but the closer we get to our own time, the more likely we are going to disagree about the possible father figures. But the foregoing consideration raises another important question. If, Ma if Madison can no longer be regarded as father of the Constitution, if other fathers have emerged in the meantime, then is his title irrelevant to us today? His ancient paternity may be a historical curiosity, perhaps, but is no lingering importance? So Madison is still important because he is the Constitution's first father and he is still its leading patriarch. And patriarchy is nothing to sneeze at. Just ask any of the followers of the three main monotheistic religions. Perhaps there are few, if any, who today practice the same religion as Abraham. But Jews, Christians, and Muslims all profess the Abrahamic religion. And Abraham is the most important point of departure, a touchstone for all the faithful, even if an unconscious one. In the same way, Madison looms large over our political discourse today, even if unconsciously, and even if we depart from his beliefs in different ways and to different degrees. Today, members of both parties accuse their opponents of precipitating a constitutional crisis. Fighting words, to be sure, but what unites these parties is in many ways more important than their differences. They all agree that we are bound by a common superior that restrains our own will. True, we are always more apt to recognize the restraints on others than on ourselves. But to the extent that we appeal to a common authority, we are agreeing, in principle at least, to be bound by those same restraints under like circumstances. We are, we are acknowledging that the Constitution is superior to individual will and even to popular will. That is an Amazonian understanding of constitutionalism. And it was not a foregone conclusion, even after the successful conception and birth of the United States Constitution, that we would eventually unite as a constitutional people. Now, in a moment, I will open the floor to questions, finally. But first, I hope that I have said enough that you are willing to join me, without qualms, in raising the glass to the concluding words of that toast Charles Jared Ingersoll offered in 1827. Suffer me to add a wish which doubtless is that of Mr. Madison, 
that party may spare at least the pillars of our political mansion, that in the strife of the politics of place, the principles, the resources, and the institutions of our country may, like its religion, be held sacred by all. I offer for your acceptance, gentlemen, and ladies, <laughs> as a sentiment becoming this meeting, the health and happiness of James Madison, the father and guardian of our Constitution. have been passed uh, in the next two years. Uh, he expected that as generations emerged and they realized defects in the Constitution, they realized other things they wanted the Constitution to do, they would simply change the Constitution. Amend it. That's what the amendment process is for. For those who are stimulated by your talk today to pursue more, what do you consider the best book or two about Madison, preferably under 500 pages? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Let me do that last stipulation. Um, some of the best books are some of the longest. Um, Ralph Ketchum is considered kind of the gold standard. It's a, it is a doorstop of a book. Uh, and, and a lot of us, even us Madison Scottish, use it more as a reference guide than, than uh, something that we read through. You know, Lynn Cheney's book is shorter, it's still pretty long, but it's a very good read and it's very reliable. Um, so I, I endorse, endorse Mrs. Cheney's book. And um, for the Constitutional Convention, uh, I like Clinton Rossiter's book, 1787 Grand Convention, if you want to focus on that period. Madison was instrumental in the Constitutional Bill of Rights. What was he doing when he passed the Second Amendment? I'll make it wasn't going to be that controversial. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. The question was, what was Madison thinking when he crafted the uh, Second Amendment? Uh, there is uh, a line in um, in one of the Federalist Papers. I wish I could cite chapter and verse. It's one of the Federalist Papers, in which he regards Americans as being peculiarly resistant to tyranny uh, and invasion uh, because we have such general gun laws, and um, and so. I know that Madison was very much in favor of a popular militia. 
Uh, this was before the embarrassing defeat at Bladensburg in the War of 1812, uh, in which there is a story that uh, Madison returned back to the White House and he's utterly demoralized. He has just seen, you know, America's brave boys run like anything to get off the field as fast as they could before the British Redcoats. And uh, when he returned back to the White House before fleeing again because they were hot on his heels, he apparently said, I never could have believed the superiority of standing army of the regulars to militia if I had not just witnessed that. Uh, so there was a widespread belief that a citizen soldier with gun in hand was going to protect liberty. Um, what's a, one little interesting facet about the Second Amendment, though, is that when Madison wrote it, he included a clause for conscientious objectors, because, again, that was also uh, very important for him. So the Second Amendment guarantees the right to bear arms and the right to refuse to bear arms. Uh, if Madison got his way, which he didn't in the amendment, but he later made up for it in the militia bill. Uh, you might add, uh, in answer to that question, that Madison actually said, and then he Oh, yes. Um, the, the, I, I thought you were talking about Madison versions of, of the Second Amendment. So, <laughs> yes. Right. That's right. So, um, so of course, there were 12 amendments that actually got submitted to the states, and only 10 were ratified, which is why what we regard as the First Amendment, you know, people always talk about our first freedoms and that sort of thing, for a long time was recognized as the Third Amendment, because it came after the first two that were not ratified. And so the original Second Amendment was something that Madison did think was an important feature, that congressmen should not be able to uh, raise their own salaries until an intervening election. <laughs> and, um, and we'll be happy to know that although it did not pass right away, it did pass 200 years later. <laughs> so uh, some bright, aspiring college student might wrote a paper about how we could still ratify this amendment, and he got a C on it. And he said, I'm going to prove my professor wrong. And he went and he started lobbying other states to start ratifying that constitution, I mean, that amendment, because it never expired. And it got ratified. So think about that the next time you get your students to see. You said Madison wrote one of those first ten himself. One clause. Oh, one clause. Yes, and you want to know which one is? I seeded that question in there. I was going to know, okay, is anyone asking about that? Um, so the clause is the takings clause, the one about eminent domain. And uh, we know that Madison was in favor of property rights. Uh, he would have been uh, in favor of that clause in any circumstances, but I like the way he phrased it. There are other examples of it in constitutions and in the Northwest Ordinance. But he added uh, the word uh, justly, just compensation for property. Um, others said, you know, reasonable com compensation, fair compensation. Addison said it has to be just. What would be his thinking now of presidency by executive order? Oh. Um, it, you know, once again, I, I'm really reticent to say, well, this is Madison's thinking if it's not something he didn't expressly say. 
but in the main, he was uh, very insistent on the institutions retaining within their constitutional structure. Um, I remember there's a very interesting dialogue going on between James and Dolly Madison when she's in Philadelphia and he's in uh, serving in Congress and there, there are rumors afoot that there might be a war with Spain and, uh, and Dolly is writing back to James and saying, what do I tell, people are asking me about this, what do I tell them, he's Secretary of State. And he writes back and he gives a somewhat nuanced response and that's always a very nuanced response. But, uh, but he says, but, you know, sort of the, um, the, the uh, important answer is that it's the decision of Congress that, uh, that if there's going to be a war, it's entirely in Congress's hands. And, um, and his understanding that the executive branch uh, entirely stays away from anything that is legitimately a legislative function. And that would include um, a declaration of war and, um, I would argue that perhaps it might also include executive orders, which are legislation by their name. So anyone who push back, come on. Thank you for coming again. I hope you have a wonderful summer and enjoy some fall. I'll have some more lectures next year.